podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our final match of the season, which was against Spezia on Sunday. In part two, I'll review the first leg of the Primavera relegation playout, which was played in Genova on Friday. And in part three, we'll review the latest news around Napoli. So let's begin with the senior team's final match of the season, which as I said was played against Spezia on Sunday. The match finished 3-0 on goals from Matteo Politano, Piotr Zielinski, and Diego Demme. With the match having little relevance for either side, Luciano Spalletti rotated nearly his entire squad to give some of his reserves an opportunity to play. It was our fourth consecutive victory to end the 2021-22 campaign, and with the win, Napoli finished the season with 79 points, which was an improvement of two points over last season. Unfortunately, the result was overshadowed by a story off the pitch, which was the clash between the two ultra groups behind the Napoli goal. We'll cover all of that in this review and we'll revisit our two keys to the match, but first let's review the starting lineups. Surprisingly, Spezia started nearly the exact same squad that we predicted in our match preview. Thiago Mota lined up in a 4-2-3-1 formation with Ivan Provedel in goal. Dimitrios Nicolaou and Martin Ehrlich played at centre-back. That was Ehrlich's final game for Spezia, having already signed to play for Sassuolo next season. Salva Ferrer started at left-back and Kelvin Amian started at right-back. Giulio Maggiore and Jakub Kivior played in the double pivot. The front four is where there were some changes compared to our predicted 11. I had Kevin Agudelo playing on the left wing, Daniele Verde playing on the right wing, Victor Kovalenko in the 10, and Ray Manai at striker. Instead, Mota played Verde on the left wing, Yanis Antiste on the right wing, Agudelo in the 10, and Manai at striker. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made 10 changes to the squad he fielded against Genoa and 6 changes compared to our predicted 11. Alex Meret started over David Ospina in goal. Kelladu Kulibali was the lone survivor from the Genoa match. He started alongside Juan Jesus at centre-back. Fauzi Goulam started at left-back over Mario Rui and Alessandro Zanoli started at right-back over Giovanni Di Lorenzo. Diego Demme and Stanislav Lobotka started over Andre Frank Zambuangisa and Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. Elif Elmas started over Lorenzo Insigne on the left wing and Matteo Politano started over Chucky Lozano on the right wing. Piotr Zielinski started over Dries Mertens in the 10 and Andrea Petania started over Victor Osimhen at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our two keys to the match. My first key to the match was that we needed to rotate the squad, and as I just said, we definitely did that. I have to say, I was impressed that Spalletti rotated as much as he did. With all of the comparisons to Gattuso's Napoli from last season, I thought he would have selfishly played more of his regular starters to make sure we won this match, but he effectively put his ego aside for his players. Now, 
you might recall at the beginning of the season, Spalletti repeated time and time again that he had 23 starters, which was his way of conveying that there was quality up and down this squad. He did ultimately find his preferred 11, but as I said in our preview, our bench is good enough to beat Spezia's starters, and we saw that on Sunday. I thought it was a very classy move by Spalletti to give Gulam the captain's armband. In our Genoa review episode, we talked about how Insignia got all the glory on that day and how Gulam was snubbed a little bit. I think quietly giving Gulam the armband was a very fitting tribute. Insignia is a flashy guy. He loves his designer clothing. He's got all the tattoos and the jewelry. So the big grandiose tribute, including a trophy that was bigger than the actual Serie A trophy, was fitting for Insignia. Gulam is quiet, he's humble, he's professional, so giving him the armband and asking him to go lead the team on the final match day of the season was a fitting tribute for him. For the other players, I was glad to see Juan Jesus start over Rachmani. Jesus played really well when Koulibaly was hurt and then at AFCON, and I think this was Spalletti's way of showing his gratitude for that. Likewise, I was glad to see Zanoli start. No one can replace Di Lorenzo, but despite the poor results in those matches, Zanoli played reasonably well enough in Di Lorenzo's absence. I think this was further confirmation that Zanoli will back up Di Lorenzo next season and that Kevin Malqui's time at Napoli has come to an end. Malqui shared a bunch of Instagram stories of people wishing him good luck, which basically confirmed that he will not be back next season. Looking back at his time with Napoli, I think Malqui had the potential, but he never really lived up to it. I was really impressed with how he played in Ancelotti's first season, but then the injuries started piling up and he never really looked the same. Obviously, with Di Lorenzo coming in in 2019, there was less playing time available for Malqui and it just never worked out for him, even during his one season at Fiorentina. But I do wish him the best of luck. I wouldn't be surprised if he signed with a lower table Serie A club or even moved back to France to play in Ligue 1. In the midfield, it was great to see Diego Demen not only start, but score his first goal of the season. That was a lovely give-and-go that he played with Patania, who I'll get to in a second. Now, we'll see whether Demis stays with Napoli next season. He's had an interesting time at Napoli so far. He and Lobotka were both signed in January 2019, and even though Demis cost about half the price of Lobotka, he won the favor of Gattuso, and he played really well that season. Meanwhile, Lobotka gained a lot of weight knowing that he wasn't going to play under Gattuso. Then, when Gattuso's contract was not extended and Spalletti was hired, Lobotka got back in shape. Spalletti was already familiar with Lobotka. He said he wanted Lobotka when he was at Inter, but they weren't able to get a deal done at the time. At the same time, we signed Angisa on loan from Fulham, and he had a fantastic start to the season as well. So almost overnight, Demme went from being a starter to being the third option, which is unfortunate because I think he is better than a third option player. As much as I would hate to see him leave, I think that could be what is best for all parties involved. We paid about 10 million euros for Demme and signed him to a four and a half year contract expiring in June 2024. So he has two years left on his contract, which means there's no risk of him walking for free. At most, the unamortized value of his transfer fee would be about 3 million euros. It's probably even less than that because of that extra half a season. So any sale over 3 million euros would generate a profit for the club. Transfer marked values Demme at 10 million euros, and I think we can sell him for even more than that, so we could make a healthy profit on a sale here. Meanwhile, while I'm sure Demme would be content to stay at Napoli considering his family ties to the club, namely the fact that his father is Italian and named him after Diego Maradona, I'm sure he would also like to play more minutes. 
Personally, I'm good either way. I think he's a perfectly good third option, but if we can make a decent profit on him and reinvest in a quality replacement, then I'd be fine with that too. That's one of the many transfer stories that we'll track over the summer. Let's move on to the front four next. I have to say, I was surprised to see Ali Felmes start over Lorenzo Insigne on the left wing. This was Insigne's final match in Serie A, but I guess Paletti figured he got a proper send-off in the Genoa match. Insigne did feature off the bench though. It was actually really nice to see him taking selfies with all the kids running onto the pitch after the match. For all the nonsense with the fans, I thought that was very wholesome. On Elmas... I think he will compete with Zizi Varishkelia for the starting role on the left wing. Varishkelia is absolutely destroying the Georgian league, but obviously there's a pretty steep rise in quality from Georgia to Italy. I think we'll have to ease Varishkelia into the league, which means Elmas could be the starting winger at the beginning of the season. Mind you, Lozano could be moved over to the left wing as well, and if that happens, then Elmas could compete with Matteo Politano for the starting position on the right wing, but I think Elmas is much better on the left than he is on the right. If Lozano or Varishkelia take over the starting role on the left wing, then I think Elmas would go back to being a utility player. Now, personally, I think it's extremely important to have a player like that on the squad because you have one player who can be the backup for multiple positions, rather having individual backups for each position, so that effectively saves you a couple of roster positions. The problem with that is I don't think we'll see Elmas reach his true potential if he is not playing regularly in the same position. Moving on, Politano started on the right wing with Lozano recovering from shoulder surgery. That was Politano's first start since the Fiorentina match over a month ago. After being a substitute for so long, it was great to see him score such a brilliant goal early in the match. I think that will give him some confidence ahead of the new season. That is, of course, assuming that he will still be a Napoli player next season. Ever since he took that random family trip to Ibiza, I've had a sneaking suspicion that he might be sold in the summer. Like Politano, Zielinski got his first start since that Fiorentina match and he scored as well. That was his first goal in the calendar year, which shows how big of a drop-off he had in the second half of the season. Zielinski acknowledged that himself speaking to the zone after the match. He said the first half of the season was good and the second half was well below his level, but he will make up for it next season again. That's assuming that he is with the club next season as well. The latest rumor on Zielinski is that Antonio Conte wants him at Tottenham, so that is another story we will track this summer. Finally, Andrea Petania started over Victor Osman at striker, and I think he played well. He made a lovely return pass to Demme on the third goal to get the assist. Petania is another player that could well leave the club in the summer, and if he does, that transfer would have been a rare miss by the club considering how much we paid for him. That said, I think a lot of our fans are being way too hard on him. He finished the season with 3 goals and 1 assist, which is not terrible considering he played only 569 minutes and he started only 4 matches, and 2 of those goals were late winners as well. He also added 3 assists in 340 minutes in the Europa League, and 1 goal and 1 assist in the Coppa Italia. So in total, he finished the season with 4 goals and 5 assists in just over 1000 minutes in all competitions. That's nearly a goal contribution per game, which is actually rather impressive for a third striker who doesn't play consistently. I don't know what more people expect from a third striker. I look around the league, and the third strikers for the other top clubs 
didn't fare that much better. At Inter, Joaquin Correa scored 6 goals and had 2 assists in all competitions. Alexis Sanchez had 9 goals and 5 assists, so he did a bit better, but he also played more minutes. Milan basically only have 2 center forwards. Ibrahimovic scored 8 goals and added 3 assists as the second striker. And I don't know who you would consider the second striker at Juve. They have Vlahovic, Morata, and Dybala, but Vlahovic joined mid-season, and Dybala tends to play more as a 10 rather than as a striker. For me, Moise Kane is the closest comparison to Patania, and he finished the season with 6 goals and 3 assists, but he also played 300 more minutes, so they're not that far off. So I don't think Patania is so bad of a third option. The problem is, with Osiman having missed large stretches of matches over the last two seasons, and with Mertens getting older, you really need to have a 2A and a 2B on the assumption that one of Osiman and Mertens will miss time, and Patania is not good enough to be a second option. The challenge is going to be convincing a better player to take on that role, which will still be viewed as a third option. The ideal candidate seems to be Edinson Cavani, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Finally, even Davide Marfella got 10 minutes of action, so Spalletti definitely rotated his squad. Our second key to the match was to take it easy given that this was basically a friendly match. I'd say that we achieved that goal as well. No one really put themselves in a position to get hurt. I thought it was a fairly clean match, at least on the pitch. Off the pitch was an altogether different story, and that's what I want to close the pod with. For those who aren't aware, the reason the play was stopped for about 12 minutes early in the first half was because there was an altercation between the traveling Napoli Ultras and the Spezia fans in the sector immediately next to them. If you're wondering why the cameramen and the commentators didn't really address the incident, that's because they are instructed by the league not to do so. Now, a lot of bits and pieces of information surfaced as this story developed, so I'll try to piece it all together for you, and I should caution you that most of my sources on this are from Napoli-based sites, so there's going to be a certain amount of bias there, but I did find some accounts from third parties that should be more objective, and a few Spezia-based sites that have the opposite bias. One of those sites is Il Secolo di Genova. They're a site that covers news in Liguria, which is the region in which the province of La Spezia is located. They claim that these events had been planned for months after traveling Spezia fans made chants about Maradona in the Girona and Data in Napoli. Now, even before the match, there were confrontations between the two fan bases as the buses and minivans carrying the Napoli supporters pulled up to the Pico. Curiously, there was no police escort for the visiting fans, which is a pretty common thing for away fans attending matches. Now, back to the local biases, there are conflicting reports about that. According to Il Secolo di Genova, the Napoli supporters planned to visit the Pico without a police escort, and they threw bottles at the Spezia fans. Calcio Napoli 24 interviewed the vice president of the club Napoli Bergamo Azzurra, Giacomo Ricciardi, who was amongst the Napoli supporters in attendance. That club goes to all away matches and Ricciardi said that it was very odd that there was no precise route to the stadium and that there was no police escort. Now regardless of who is responsible for arranging for the police escort, the lack of police presence was an issue throughout the day. So then we get to the clash between the fans which started around the 11th minute and lasted about 12 minutes. Again there are conflicting reports on which side instigated the fights. According to Ricciardi, everything broke out after the Politano goal with Spezia fans making fun of the death of Maradona and singing the usual Vesuvio chants. 
The counselor of sport for La Spezia, Lorenzo Broghi, gave an interview to Radio Punto Nuovo where he said that he did not hear the Maradona chants, but there were definitely territorial chants. There's video footage of the Vesuvio chants, so he couldn't possibly deny those. Ricciardi said that these chants happen at virtually every Napoli away match now. In fact, we've seen the territorial chants being sung even at matches where Napoli is not even playing. They almost become just a part of the regular track list, if you will, for some of these ultra groups, which is really disgusting. Now, Ricciardi claimed that Spezia fans triggered the clash by launching smoke bombs into the Napoli sector and then the Napoli fans tossed them back. Meanwhile, Calcio Spezia Punto Eat made it seem like the Napoli supporters were entirely at fault. They claimed that the Napoli supporters threw smoke bombs at the Spezia fans, including families, before jumping over the rail. So it's really difficult to say who started the violence. In one video, I saw the first smoke bomb being tossed from the Napoli section, but it's possible that things happened before that individual hit record. One thing I completely agree with Brogi on is that it doesn't really matter who started it, these things simply cannot happen at football matches. This was a noon kickoff local time, there were plenty of families with children in attendance, neither side had anything to play for, and this really left a stain on what was otherwise a good match. Now, I think some things could have done better to prevent this from happening. Ricciardi noted that there was only a small glass wall separating the two sectors and that it was very easy to climb over. He also noted that there was no police, there are only stewards who obviously are not properly equipped to stop something like this from happening. The Digos or the state police only showed up after the clashes started and for some reason they only went to the Napoli sector. Ricciardi said that both Koulibaly and Goulam were there telling the police that they should have gone to the Spezia section as well. Now, in an interview with Radio Kiss Kiss, Napoli's radio commentator Carmina Martino said that he was informed that amongst the Spezia supporters were Sampdoria and Marseille Ultras. Marseille's Ultras have a bitter rivalry with ours, which also suggests that some of this was premeditated. In terms of the damage, four people were injured during the clashes, including a Napoli fan who had a smoke bomb explode in his hand. Apparently, the smoke bomb was tossed by the Spezia fans into the Napoli section, and he picked it up to toss it back when it went off. Eventually, the authorities got the situation under control, and certain individuals were escorted off the grounds. Then at halftime, there were reports and videos of the local firefighters opening up a fire hydrant on the Napoli section. Now, there are different accounts as to why this was done. The first is that it was done upon the request of the Napoli supporters who wanted to be cooled from the heat. Another was that it was done to cool down the Napoli supporters because they were so hot-tempered. The most logical explanation was that it was done to extinguish any smoke bombs. Though if that was the case, you would have expected them to have done the same thing in the Spezia sector as well. Apparently, the clashes continued after the match as well. Typically, the visiting fans are held in the stadium for a few hours after the match ends to prevent this from happening, but I guess the Spezia fans waited for them. Corriere dello Sport reported that Spezia supporters blocked the Napoli buses and minivans, and police intervention was required to prevent the ambush. So there's plenty to be investigated. Il Secolo di Genova reported that the Digos investigators are using video surveillance from the Pico to identify the Napoli fans who invaded the pitch and attacked the Spezia supporters. Again, you can see the bias there in the assumption that it was only Napoli fans at fault. Lega Serie A CEO Luigi De Siervo was a bit more objective. On La Politica nel Pallone on Rai, he said what happened was shameful and that they will use technology to determine who the protagonists were in this bad advert for Serie A. 
On Wednesday, one Napoli fan and three Spezia fans were arrested for hopping over the barrier to engage in brawls. We also got the ruling of the sports judge, who came down pretty hard on the two clubs. Spezia were fined 15,000 euros, and they'll have to play one match next season with no fans in that sector, which is called the swimming pool sector. Napoli were fined 30,000 euros, and will have to play one match next season with no fans in the Curva A. And those were reduced penalties thanks to the efforts of the players and the coaches who intervened to break up those clashes. So this was definitely not how we imagined the season ending. Napoli finished the season in third place with 79 points and a record of 24 wins, 7 draws, and 7 losses. We'll do another episode to review the season that was and we'll begin to take a look forward to the 2022-23 season, which will be starting before you know it. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll review the first leg of the Primavera's relegation playout against Genoa. Welcome to part 2 of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, I'll review the Primavera's relegation playout match on Friday. This was the first of two legs which was played in Genova. As a reminder, Genoa were in the playout after losing their final match of the season against Milan. That was Genoa's 8th consecutive match without a victory, and with that loss, they closed the season with only one win in their last 16 matches. Meanwhile, we were in the playoff after losing to Hellas Verona in the final match of the season. That was our second consecutive missed opportunity to secure salvation against clubs that had nothing at all to play for. Now, this was the third meeting of the campaign between Genoa and Napoli. We won the first meeting 2-1 in Genova. Antonio Trophy scored early in that match, and then neither side scored again until stoppage time. Giuseppe Ambrosino scored in the 94th minute to double our lead, and then Andrea Neschi scored a minute later. The second meeting was our third from last of the season, and it finished 1-1. Federico Maca opened the scoring in the second half, and Ambrosino equalized from the spot in the 76th minute. That proved to be an important goal because it meant that Napoli would have the head-to-head advantage with an aggregate score of 3-2. Consequently, the first leg was played in Genova so that the return leg can be played in Napoli. Now, for this match, we were without arguably our best player in Giuseppe Ambrosino. He picked up two yellow cards in that Hellas Verona match, and therefore he had no choice but to sit this one out. Fortunately, both Daniel Hisai and another player who is arguably our best, Antonio Vergara, returned from suspensions that kept them out of the Hellas Verona match. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Genoa lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Jacopo Corci in goal. Daniele Bolcano and Gabriele Calvani started at centre-back. Brian Bocci started at left-back and Luca Della Piana started at right-back. Arian Sediku and Federico Maca played in the double pivot. Bilal Sally started on the left wing, Michele Ambrosini started on the right wing, Michele Bezzaggio played in the number 10, and Alexander Buxa started at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made a few changes to the squad that he fielded against Hellas Verona. He lined up in our usual 3-4-2-1 formation with Huberti Dasek in goal. Davide Costanzo, Daniel Hisai, and Benedetto Barba played as the back three. With Hisai back from suspension, Pasquale Pontillo returned to the bench. Gennaro Iaccarino and Coli Sacco started in the center of the midfield with Davide Acampa on the left and Giuseppe D'Agostino on the right. D'Agostino was able to play in his natural position with Antonio Vergara back from suspension, which meant Matteo Marchisano was back on the bench as well. Vergara and Alessandro Spavone played as the two trequartisti. 
Finally, Antonio Pesce started at striker over the suspended Ambrosino. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. I thought this was a very entertaining match and also a very even one. Both sides had plenty of opportunities to score, and it seemed like in the first half they alternated chances. Genoa got the first chance only three minutes into the match. The chance came on the break with Maka playing the ball out wide to Sally. He flashed a pass across the face of the goal to Ambrosini at the second post. Fortunately, he was just a fraction of a second too late. All it needed was a touch and Genoa would have been ahead. And actually, Ambrosini was late on a couple of chances like that in the first half. The Azzurini came back the other way and got an excellent opportunity to score in the 8th minute. We played a long throw in from the left wing into the area. Pesce did well to hold up the play with both Bocci and Volcani nearby. Then he turned and fired on target but Corci reacted quickly and kicked the shot out. Genoa got their second chance only a couple of minutes later. Bezzaggio played an in-swinging cross into the area from the left wing. Buxa got to the ball first but it bounced off his knee and finished well wide of the mark. Consistent with the pattern of chances, we got our second chance of the match shortly after that and what a chance it was. Sacco played an outswinging cross with his left boot from the left wing. Pesce did well to get a touch on the ball before Bocci slipped in the area. That allowed Spavone a free shot from about 10 yards out but once again Corci kicked out the low shot. With all these chances being created, you sensed it was only a matter of time before one of these clubs opened the scoring. That moment came in the 19th minute. After a couple of weak efforts that were stopped by Idasek, Antonio Pesce scored his first goal of the season. The move started with Barba switching the play to Acampa on the left wing. He lobbed the ball down the line to Vergara who showed why he leads the league in assists. He took the ball down with a brilliant little backheel touch then stepped behind the ball and played a perfect outswinging cross behind the Genoa back line. Pesce let the ball bounce once then smashed the ball in the half volley from the corner of the 6 yard box past the helpless Corci and into the top corner of the goal. That put Napoli ahead 1-0 but the lead did not last very long. Bezzaggio scored a brilliant equalizer only 3 minutes later. The play started with a Genoa throw in from the right wing. Ambrosini touched the ball toward the byline before crossing to Bezzaggio at the edge of the area. D'Agostino was marking Bezzaggio but he was late to react and Bezzaggio had plenty of time to smash his volley into the bottom corner of the goal. Idasek could do nothing but watch as that ball blew past him and into the back of the goal. So at the midway point of the half the score was all level at 1. I thought Genoa were the more positive side for the balance of the half but they weren't able to create too many clear-cut opportunities to score. In the 37th minute, Buxa did really well to control a cross from the right wing with his back to goal. He turned and put a powerful shot on target but it was straight at Idasiak and he made the save. That hold-up play is definitely a part of Buxa's repertoire. He made a similar play from a corner kick in the second half but on that occasion, the shot was blocked. So the first half ended 1-1, which I think was a fair scoreline. Now the second half was just as intense and just as even, but neither side created as many chances as they did in the first half. Like at the end of the first half, I thought Genoa were the more positive side in the second half, but Napoli defended really well and limited Genoa's shots on target. We blocked a number of shots, so Genoa had a few corner kicks, but they weren't able to do anything with them. Up until the final 10 minutes of the match, the only quality scoring chance came Napoli's way and it was created by D'Agostino. In the 51st minute, he picked up the ball in the right wing. He dribbled past Bezzaggio and into the area, then cut back to his left. Bezzaggio recovered well and blocked the shot, but the rebound fell to D'Agostino. He tried again, but his low shot just missed the far post. 
After that, neither side created anything until about the 83rd minute. Napoli were temporarily playing a man down after Costanzo appeared to roll his ankle. And sure enough, while he was off the pitch receiving treatment, Genoa won a penalty kick. The play started with Delapiana's cross being blocked by substitute Enrico Giannini. Delapiana saved the ball from going out for a throw, then ran right back at Giannini. He got inside the area, then cut to his right. Giannini lunged at the ball and instead caught Delapiana. The official had no choice but to award the penalty, which was clearly the correct decision. I think Giannini took a big risk, and I would say an unnecessary risk with that sly tackle. We had plenty of blue shirts in the area to defend the cross. In any event, Buxa stepped up to the spot and calmly placed the ball into the bottom corner to put Genoa ahead 2-1. Frustalupi immediately responded with three substitutes. He replaced Iacarino with Francesco Gioielli, Spavone with Matteo Marchisano, and Pesce with Giovanni Mercurio. Those changes didn't make a huge difference, but two of the starters did. I suppose you could say Marchisano made a difference because he won a throw-in on the right wing in the 89th minute. Marchisano took the throw-in himself, and Maranzino did a great job to fight off the challenges from Maca and Corci. The ball fell to D'Agostino, and he made a great play first to dribble past Sadiku towards the byline, and second to play the cross to the first post. Sacco used his size to win the header over Della Piana and delicately glanced the ball into the bottom corner at the far post. That was his fourth goal of the season and it was easily the most important. We had five minutes of stoppage time after that but that did not solve anything so the first leg ended 2-2. This was a solid result for us away from home. Now we head back to Napoli for the return leg which will be played on Thursday. That may not be so great for us though, we had a record of 5 wins, 4 draws and 8 losses at home this season. That was the 4th worst home record in the league. Meanwhile, Genoa had the 6th best away record in the league with 6 wins, 5 draws and 6 losses. So this tie is completely up in the air. Fortunately, we'll have the league leaders in both goals and assists available for that match. It will be the first of 3 matches that both Vergara and Ambrosino will be in the squad. Hopefully those two can lead us to salvation. That will do for part two. In part three, we'll cover all the latest news. Welcome to part three of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with an update on the latest news. The big story this week was that Matthias Oliveira was at Villa Stuart on Tuesday to have medicals. We don't have any official announcements or tweets from De Laurentiis yet, but all indications are that he is set to join Napoli. On Wednesday, Oliveira's agent Pablo Bozzelli told Serie A News that Oliveira still hasn't had the opportunity to speak to Spalletti, but he wanted Napoli at all costs. According to Il Matino, Juventus, Atletico Madrid, and a number of Premier League clubs were on his track as well, but Oliveira was determined to play for Napoli. According to Gazzetta dello Sport, Benfica were pressing for Oliveira as well. The reports are that Napoli acquired Oliveira on loan from Hitafe with the option to buy for 12 million euros plus 2 million euros in bonuses, all of which will be paid over two years. If that's true, this is a fantastic deal. Oliveira's release clause was 20 million euros, which is another indication that the player's will was to play for Napoli, and that's exactly what you want in your incoming players. It's also the reason why it seemed like this deal was getting further apart. Gazzetta dello Sport writes that Oliveira was encouraged to join Napoli by his teammate on the Uruguayan international team, Edinson Cavani. 
According to La Repubblica, Oliveira has signed a five-year contract with a starting salary of one and a half million euros per season. So this is right where De Laurentiis wants his salary to be. Oliveira has already returned to Spain to prepare for his trip to the United States, where Uruguay will play three friendly matches ahead of the Qatar World Cup. They will play against Mexico on June 3rd, the United States on June 5th, and Jamaica on the 11th. Oliveira is expected to take a short vacation after those friendlies before arriving in Napoli. At the latest, he would join the club for the retreat at the Mauro Folgarida, which is scheduled to commence on July 9th. So Napoli are off to a quick start on the summer mercato. We exercised our option to purchase Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa from Fulham. We've signed Zizi Varishkelia from Dinamo Batumi to replace Lorenzo Insigne. And now we've signed Oliveira from Getafe to replace Fauzi Goulam. So the left side of the field is taken care of. We'll have to wait and see what this means for Mario Rui. Last season, his agent Mario Giuffredi said that they wanted to stay for one more season to restore Mario Rui's value and then they would look elsewhere. However, on Saturday, Giuffredi was on Radio Punto Nuovo where he said that Mario Rui will almost certainly stay at Napoli for two more seasons. Napoli fans would love that if he's willing to accept a role as a backup. Meanwhile, reports have surfaced that Maurizio Sarri wants Mario Rui at Lazio. If they want him, they would have to purchase him from Napoli because Mario Rui is under contract with Napoli until 2025. Now, there are plenty of other transfer rumors out there as well, but we're going to do a more comprehensive transfer update episode in the future. In other news, the league is in the middle of a battle with the Fiji Chi over a newly imposed liquidity index of 0.5. That means current assets over current liabilities need to be at least 0.5. For those of you who are not accountants, which includes me, I'm not an accountant, that means the clubs need to have enough cash or things that can be easily converted to cash on hand to cover at least 50% of their short-term debt obligations. The objective of the Fiji Chi, led by President Gabriela Gravina, is to ensure that these clubs are financially sustainable. This index is planned to go into effect for the start of the 2022-23 campaign and any clubs who do not meet that index would be prohibited from registering for the campaign. According to Legacetia President Lorenzo Casini, the clubs have already initiated the appeals process not because they want to start a war, but due to the absence of constructive dialogue with the Fiji Chi. In more positive news, Italy's Council of Ministers have approved an amendment to the Melandri Law. The Melandri Law is a law that was introduced 14 years ago that governs the sale of Serie's audio and visual rights outside of Italy. The key change with this amendment is the removal of the time limit. Prior to the amendment, the league could only sell rights outside of Italy for three years at a time. This aligns Serie with the other top leagues in Europe and should result in an increase in TV revenue. Lega Serie is already negotiating TV rights in Abu Dhabi that would generate 28.5 million euros per season over a five-year contract. Meanwhile, the capital gains case continues to drag on. On the 18th of May, the Federal Court of Appeals rejected the appeal of the Fiji Chiefs prosecutor against the acquittal of the 61 defendants of the so-called capital gains investigation. This was the one that investigated the Victor Osiman transfer, amongst many others. According to the Court of Appeal, two private individuals can agree on the price of a sale, any price, to the point that a free negotiation between parties cannot be defined as illegal. Now, I'm not sure De Laurentiis is entirely in the clear just yet, though. 
On Tuesday, local police raided Leal's headquarters as part of their investigation into the Victor Osman swap deal. Moving on, Kostas Manolas gave a long interview to La Repubblica where he talked about his departure from Napoli. When he was asked why he left in January, Manolas simply said, ask De Laurentiis. He added that there have been problems with the club, but out of respect for his teammates who are still there, he did not provide more details. When he was asked why he chose to go to Greece, he said that was a strong desire of his because he knew he would be loved by the team and the fans there. Manolas is Greek, so that pretty much goes without saying. The interviewer added that in Greece he would play more, alluding to the fact that Manolas spent a lot of time on the bench this season. Manolas elaborated, saying he started the first four matches, and then he was benched after he made the mistake in the Juventus match, but he didn't think he deserved to be benched. That said, he does not have any animosity towards Spalletti, quite the opposite. He said Spalletti is amongst the best coaches he has ever known. He said they didn't have the best relationship, but they separated on good terms, with Manolas wishing Spalletti the best of luck. Finally, Brand Finance released its Football 50 2022, which evaluates the strongest brands in football. Seven Italian clubs made it into the top 50, but none of them cracked the top 10. Juventus have the 11th most valuable brand. Their value increased by 25% to 705 million euros. Inter were 14th on the list. Their brand increased in value by 30% to 495 million euros. Milan were 17th on the list. Their brand increased in value by 76% to 269 million euros. And Napoli came in at 27th with our brand increasing in value by 32% to 182 million euros the usual customers were at the top of the list they just shuffled positions a little bit the top 10 in order are real madrid manchester city barcelona liverpool manchester united bayern munich psg tottenham chelsea and arsenal so that will do for the news that will also do for this episode i hope you enjoyed it if you did please share it with a friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform as always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. Be sure to check out our Twitter page for our latest Napolitan song of the week. This week's song is Enzo Colursi's Napoli Stazione Centrale, which is from his 2012 EP by the same name. Colursi was part of a band called Isole Minori Setoli which reached the finals of the De Andre Awards in 2015. That group then disbanded after four years of intensive live shows. Colursi subsequently started a solo project under the name Luke. In 2020, he released his debut album entitled Nova Sigarette, so be sure to check that out. Now, even though the season is over, I will be back later in the week. I've got a few ideas that I'm working on, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Sports Social Podcast Network.